What does it really mean to uh, be a disciple of Christ? I wonder if you've ever thought about that question. What does Christ uh, expect of us while we live or as we move along this uh, Christian journey? Now, there's different ways to answer that question. And this morning, I'd like to look at uh, one very important answer that I believe is found in uh, the passage that was read to us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. So if you could turn there, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, as we look at verses 1 through 11, specifically focusing more on verses 3 through 9. Now, when we come to uh, Mark 14, Mark's recounting of the events of Christ's life while he's on this earth is slowly coming to a close. The betrayal and the trials and the suffering and ultimately all leading to the death of Christ are fast approaching. And there's a lot of tension in the air as seen in verses 1 and 2 of Mark 14. I'll just uh, read those verses. Mark 14, 1 and 2. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, that is Jesus, by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And Matthew's Gospel tells us that uh, this scene is actually taking place in the palace of none other than the high priest Caiaphas. So it's an official gathering of the religious elite of Jerusalem. The religious leaders, the chief priests, the high priests who thought that they were the ultimate standard of morality and spirituality. The ones who were really the only ones pleasing to God. But they had a problem. There was this man called Jesus who claimed to be the son of God and openly questioned and many times even criticized the things that they did. You know, in Mark's Gospel itself, we are told in chapter 11 that this man Jesus had the audacity to drive out the merchants from the temple. Also in chapter 11, he refused to answer the religious leader's question about where he got the authority to do the things he was doing. If that wasn't bad enough, in chapter 12, he spoke a parable against the religious leaders, and he skillfully answered all of their questions, whether it was about taxes, the resurrection, and even the greatest commandment. And not only that, but this man Jesus even dared ask them a question about what one part of the Old Testament scripture from Psalm 110 really meant. It's kind of like asking Bill Gates if he knows what a computer is. So the religious leaders... At this time, when we come to chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, they've had it with this man called Jesus. They know they have to get rid of him, but as we read in verse 2, they have to do it carefully. Not in the midst of the people, lest there be a revolt. And when we come to the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, what really drives the religious leaders over the edge, as it were, I believe, is Jesus's harsh condemnation of them. Mark 12, verses 38 to 40. Jesus said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best palace at best places at feasts, 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And then listen to this. Regarding these religious leaders, they will receive greater condemnation. So from a human perspective, we can understand why these religious leaders had it with Jesus. But then when we come to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 3, the scene shifts suddenly. You know, Mark is going to complete the scene that he started in verses 1 and 2 in verses 10 and 11. But before that, he squeezes in another story that was read to us in verses 3 through 9. Shall we read verse 3? And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he that is Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now here Simon is identified as a leper, which most probably meant he was a a former leper, since lepers were outcasts in Jewish society. Some have even speculated that it's possible that Christ had healed him and he's kind of throwing this dinner party, as it were, as an expression of gratitude. Now, look at the contrast with verses 1 and 2. On one side, you have the religious elite meeting in a prominent place, in the palace of the high priest. But then in verse 3, you have Jesus, the Son of God, the elite of all elite, meeting in the home of a former outcast, a leper. And the word for he sat at the table in verse 3 is really the word for reclining. Some of your translations may have that word reclining. And it indicated that the meal was over or nearly over. But into this peaceful scene, something happens. Suddenly, a woman enters with a flask of something. She breaks the flask and she pours it on the head of Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, in the same account, John tells us that she poured it on the feet of Jesus. So most likely, as she poured it on the head, it was dripping down his head, his beard, his chest, and ultimately reached his feet. Now, anointing of a guest was common in those days, but that was something that was reserved for the host to do, in this case, Simon. This woman, whom John's Gospel records as being Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, was not the host. Now, we don't even know for sure if she was an invited guest. And if she was, she's late because the meal is over or nearly over. Not only that, but in that culture and in that time period, her being a woman usurping the role of the host would have been thought of as an even greater offense. Now, as we go through this narrative, four characteristics or features of her sacrifice or her action, I call it a sacrifice, and I'll explain why, but four features of her action are revealed to us. Now, we read in verse 3 that she had an alabaster flask that was a long-necked bottle made out of a special variety of marble, a marble that was best suited for storing perfumes and oils, fragrances. And in fact, we read in verse 3, that's exactly what Mary had. Verse 3 tells us, oil, a very costly oil of spikenard. Some translations may have pure nard. It was something that was derived from the nard plant, which was native to India. So it was quite costly because they had to bring this plant over all of those miles in order to make this particular type of fragrance or perfume. 
And we read that she broke the flask and she poured the contents out. So the first thing we notice is it was a complete sacrifice. It was a total offering. She did not hold anything back. She gave it all, every last drop. The jar was shattered and the perfume was gone in an instant. Now notice uh, Jesus' word, come down to verse 8. She has done what she could. She gave everything. See, this was not a gift that first calculated to see how much she would have left for herself. This was not a gift that was measured against the amount of tithe that the law required. This was a gift that was total and complete. She broke the flask and poured the entire contents onto Jesus' head. But not only was it a complete sacrifice, we also noticed it was a clean sacrifice. This was pure nard or spike nard of the highest quality. In other words, this was the best of the best. You know, this was no leftover product that happened to be lying around after it had first been used for something else. This wasn't something that was about to be donated because the user no longer wanted it or it was out of style or something better had come along. This wasn't something that, you know, had a stain or was torn or something she was bored with, so she thought, well, I'm not using it, so I might as well give it away. I came across recently a story of a certain Thanksgiving season when uh, butterball turkeys, one of the uh, biggest uh, sellers or purveyors of uh, holiday foods, they set up a hotline to answer questions regarding how their turkeys should be prepared. And uh, apparently a lady called in with a question about a turkey that had been in her freezer for 23 years. Now, the man on the other end of the line, the uh, butterball turkey representative said, Ma'am, if the freezer temperature had been constantly maintained, the turkey is probably okay after all these years, but we are certain the flavor would have deteriorated considerably. So we recommend you don't eat it. The woman's reply, well, that's exactly what we thought. We'll just take it for the church potluck. Now, that's not the attitude with which Mary is bringing this sacrifice for Jesus. That's not the way that Mary was thinking, well, I can't use it. It's, I'm too good for this, so I might as well give it to someone else. No. Now, not only was Mary's sacrifice complete and clean, but we read it was a costly sacrifice. We are told in verse 5 that it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii was equivalent to about a year's wages for an average worker. So imagine that, an entire year income gone in a few seconds, dripping down the hair, the face, the feet of this man called Jesus. Uh, one commentator put it this way, this was not a Sunday morning scramble for the checkbook, to put in a few dollars so that I feel I have done my duty. This was no garage sale trifle. This was no unwanted hand-me-down. This was probably one of the most, if not the most precious thing that Mary had. An entire year's income gone in a few seconds. This was everything that she hoped to live on. Gone in an instant. 
Now, no wonder it provoked such a nasty reaction by those who were around. Look at verse 4. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil, keyword, wasted? Verse 5. It might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now, John's Gospel, in his account, he tells us that Judas was the instigator of this comment, this complaint. And Matthew's version tells us that all of the disciples joined in on his lead. So really what they're saying is to Mary, what have you done? Uh, What were you thinking? Why waste something so precious? And they have a very noble reason or justification, as we read in verse 5, you could have given this to the poor. But look at Jesus' response or his reaction in verses 6 and 7. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work, keyword, for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish you may do them good, but me you do not have always. Now Jesus is not saying that he does not care for the poor. That's not the case at all. Of course Jesus was concerned for the poor. Uh, Just a few chapters before in Mark chapter 10, he told the rich young ruler to sell all he had and give it to the poor. But the point Jesus is making here is the contrast between the duration of having him in their midst and the poor in their midst. There would come a time later on when they could care for the poor, but there would not be opportunity later on to express such devotion to Jesus because he would not always be with them physically in their midst. You know, we remember in Mark chapter 16, we are told that some of the women went to the tomb with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. But by then it was too late. There was no need for an anointing because he had already been resurrected. In other words, Jesus is saying what this woman Mary has done exemplifies the priority of why I came to this earth. And he clarifies that in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now Jesus hasn't, been, hasn't even been arrested yet, yet he's already talking about his burial. And as we know, a burial only comes after death. And then in verse 9, furthermore he says, I say to you assuredly, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Now, there are three significant phrases in verses 7 through 9 that explain why this event, why this woman anointing Jesus was so important. Verse 7, you do not always have me. Verse 8, my burial. Verse 9, the gospel. In other words, I believe what Jesus is saying is Mary understood something about Jesus' mission and why he had come to this world. She knew that Jesus was not going to be around much longer. Verse 7, you do not always have me. She knew it had something to do, she knew that he was going to die. Verse 8, burial. And she knew that it had something to do with a sacrifice on Christ's part. Verse 9, Gospel. Now, I don't think she had all of the details worked out like we do today. She didn't know John 3.16, for example. 
but she knew there was something extraordinary, there was something special, something unique about this man. Now, in order to understand, I believe, the full significance of her action, we have to understand the context in which this is happening in Mark's Gospel. Why is it so special, or why is it so significant that this simple woman, Mary, understood Jesus' mission? I believe the answer is because Jesus was moving with a group of people who did not understand anything about his mission at this point. Three times prior to this, Jesus had very clearly told his disciples why he had come to this earth. But what was their reaction? Come for a moment to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. This is immediately after Peter has confessed Jesus is the Christ. Mark 8 and verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is him, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So the text tells us that Christ very openly told them, I am going to be betrayed, I am going to suffer, I am going to die. But what is the disciples' reaction? We know that uh, Peter had no problem being the self-appointed spokesman. And he pulls Jesus aside and says, uh, hold on. What's all this nonsense about suffering and dying? Kings are supposed to conquer kingdoms and occupy thrones, not suffer and die. See, Peter, and I believe he was speaking for all of the disciples, he wanted Christ to become king and overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what many of the Jews were hoping the Messiah would do for them. Peter could not fathom that Christ, the King, the Son of God, experiencing suffering and death? No. And in fact, in verse 32, we read that Peter began to rebuke Christ. Imagine that, rebuking the Son of God. And the word there is the word for a strong, forceful sort of command. This shall never in a million years, Lord, happen to you. And Christ's response, Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You are working as an agent for Satan himself. The second prediction comes in the very next chapter, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 31. Mark 9 and verse 31. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Seems pretty clear. Verse 32, But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? So they're walking along on the road. Christ has just told them about all the sufferings and death and his resurrection. The disciples don't understand that because they have more important matters to discuss. Verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. 
So Christ is telling them, this is what is going to happen to me. But rather than trying to understand more of Christ's mission, they are more preoccupied with which one of us out of this group is the greatest. Now, I don't know what reasons they may have given. Maybe some of them said, well, you know, he chose us first. We're obviously the greatest. Maybe Matthew said, yeah, but you know, you guys are just fishermen. Jesus needs people with class and influence in his kingdom. And that's me. Remember, I was a tax collector. I know people in high places. Maybe Peter, James, and John came back with, uh, maybe so, but uh, who did Jesus choose to witness on the Mount of, to witness uh, the Mount of, uh, the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration? I believe it was us. Now, whatever the reasons may have been, think about it. Christ told them he is going to die, but they have absolutely no interest or no regard for that. They are more focused on, how can I be the greatest? One more time, Christ predicts what's going to happen to him. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. I've told you once, I've told you twice. I'm going to tell you a third time. Verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, kill him. It's like he's giving more details this time to make sure they get it. And the third day he will rise again. What's his disciples' reaction? Look at the very next verse in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in glory. So it's almost like James and John are saying, Okay, fine, all this is going to happen to you, whatever. But before that, before you have to go through all this suffering and death, let's get something straight. In the future, when you set up your kingdom in Jerusalem, both of us brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we want to make sure that we have our places reserved. One on your right hand and one on your left. And the three of us, James, John and Jesus, we can oversee the kingdom and make sure the rest of these other guys do all the work. That's what they were thinking of even after Jesus told them yet again what was going to happen to him. So it's very clear from these three predictions coming back to Mark chapter 14 that none of the disciples understood, at least at this point, the real reason why Jesus came into this world. They did not understand the significance of his death. Every time he spoke of his death, they had some objection or something more selfish on their minds. They were consumed with self-interest or absorbed with self-promotion. And in fact, if you come to Mark chapter 14 and verse 27, when Jesus made the prediction that all the disciples will be made to stumble, what does Peter say in verse 29? Even if all of the rest are made to stumble, Lord, I will not stumble. And if you look at Luke's account, it says that all of the disciples said the same thing. We are ready to go to prison with you. We are even ready to die for you. We all know how that turned out. 
Words, words, and more words. The disciples always had words. But coming back to our incident in Mark 14 and verse 3, you notice that this lady Mary, in our passage, doesn't say a single word. Now, it doesn't mean that words are you know, not important. Of course, we, we, we need words. We express through words. But the point is, the problem with the disciples was they only had words. They didn't have anything else. And like the song we heard, there are certain things that Mary was trying to express that could not be expressed in mere words. So what Jesus is telling the disciples is, you have been with me day and night for the last couple of years. You are the ones that were the closest to me that I have told all of the details of my mission to. And yet you guys don't get it. You have words and words and more words. You have objections, you have aspirations, you have ambitions, you have goals. But what did this lady Mary have? She had a simple offering and action. In other words, Jesus is saying her action demonstrated that in the midst of people who are the closest to Jesus, who should have understood what he was about, but didn't, she did. She didn't have all the details worked out, but she knew and understood, if only to a limited extent, but far greater than the others, who Jesus was and what he was about. Notice she does not have any forceful words or empty promises or vain ambitions. She simply brought what she had and she did what she could. She gave a complete, clean, and costly sacrifice to the Lord. And I believe Mark's purpose in recording this is, coming back to our original question, that's really the essence of being a true disciple, isn't it? Understanding Jesus' mission and responding to it. Now, not only was her sacrifice complete, clean, and costly, but it was also, we could say, commendable. Verse 9 we read, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is preached, this will be told as a memorial to her. Jesus is saying this simple action that this woman has done will always be remembered because in the larger sense, that exemplifies what the gospel is about. Understanding who Jesus is, understanding what he did, and what should be our response to that. She had heard, she had understood, and she had responded with an extravagant sacrifice that was clean, that was, that was complete, that was clean, that was costly and commendable. See, the disciples were concerned about receiving. Who is the greatest Lord? Put us in the position of greatness. She was only concerned with giving. She said not through her words, but through her heart and through her actions, Lord, I don't deserve anything. You deserve everything. Now when we come to verses 10 and 11, Mark completes the scene that he started in verses 1 and 2. Mark 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So Judas, probably angered by the Lord's reaction to his complaint in verses 4 and 5, and you know, the Lord's praise of this woman in verse 9, he also is now driven over the edge, as it were, and he goes to the religious leaders, and he works out a deal to deliver Christ into their hands. Now think about the contrast between this woman and Judas. Uh, one author put it this way. One, a devoted disciple. 
the other a double-crossing deceiver. One gave to Christ, the other wanted to give Christ over. One gave money for Christ's burial, the other was given money for Christ's betrayal. Who really was the disciple here? Jesus, uh, Judas was the one who had been with Jesus for so long. But who really exhibited the true characteristics of a disciple? It wasn't Judas, it was Mary. We also find another group of people here who did not understand who Christ was and his mission. That is Judas and the religious leaders. See, the 11 disciples did not want Christ to suffer and die because they thought he did not deserve it. That's unfit for a king to die. That would spoil all their plans. But Judas and the religious leaders wanted Christ to die because they thought he deserved it. He is upsetting our religious system. He is questioning our authority. He is a blasphemer. He is a rebel. He is really not falling in line with the control we have over the people. So you have the disciples and you have the religious leaders. And in between them, you have this simple woman, Mary. Simple and insignificant as she may be. But she got it. She knew something about who Jesus was and why he came to this world. And she did something in response to it. And while those around her cried waste, the Lord knew her motive and the Lord knew why she had done it. She did not do it because she wanted recognition or fame or to prove she was better than others. She did it purely out of her love and devotion for Him and her desire to worship Him and acknowledge the great sacrifice that He was about to make. You know, something about Mary we find in the New Testament, a very special lady, whenever she is mentioned, she is always mentioned as being at the feet of Jesus. For example, come to John's Gospel, chapter 12. This is John's version of the same account that we looked at in Mark 14, John's Gospel, chapter 12, and verse 3. John 12, verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The chapter just before that, John chapter 11, after the death of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, uh, the Lord is uh, on his way or he's meeting them there at the place. And look at Mary's reaction, John chapter 11, verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. Also, Luke's gospel chapter 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. When Jesus is again at the home of Mary and Martha, we know that Martha was quite preoccupied with getting the meal ready. But what does it say that Mary was doing? Luke's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet. So whenever Mary is shown to us in the New Testament, she is always at the feet of Jesus. And that's the best place a disciple can be, isn't it? So again, as opposed to the 12 disciples, Mary is the one, at least at this point in the New Testament, who is, who is exhibiting the real characteristics, the real marks of a true disciple of Christ. The other disciples, the apostles, they'll get it, but only later on. But this woman has already got it. Hers was an extravagant sacrifice. Why? 
It was complete. She gave everything she had. It was clean. She gave the purest, the best of the best. It was costly. She gave something of tremendous value, an entire year's salary. And it was commendable. The Lord was pleased with her sacrifice. So what does it have to do with us this morning? Well, the question for us, if we consider ourselves as disciples of Christ, is what is the extravagant sacrifice that the Lord is calling each of us to make? But even before that, have we really understood who Jesus is and what his mission is about? Or at times, do we only think of Jesus as someone who is there to fulfill our needs and desires like the disciples were at this point? At this point, the disciples' understanding of Jesus is he's going to set up the kingdom and he can give us prominence. They only looked at Jesus as a means to an end. And it's unfortunate that many people in our world treat Jesus, even in the name of Christianity, treat Jesus the same way, simply as a means to an end. But do we understand this morning that Jesus primarily came to this world, you know, not as a teacher or a healer or a miracle worker or a prophet. Of course, he was all of those things and more. But he came to this world first and foremost as a savior. A savior that came to save us from the penalty of sin. That it separated us from God. And that's why Jesus was going to make his extraordinary sacrifice. That's why he rose from the dead. So the price of our sin could be paid for, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have peace with God, and so we could have eternal life. And this forgiveness and eternal life is offered freely to us as a gift, is what the Bible tells us. We can't earn it. We will never deserve it. We can never save enough to pay for it. It only comes to us through the grace of God. So if there's anyone here this morning, you have not yet really understood or recognized who Jesus is and why he came to this world, that's where it begins. Recognizing that he is the Savior who came to pay the penalty for our sins. But for those of us who have received God's gift of salvation, who are his children, who are his followers, what will our extravagant sacrifice be? Well, I can't answer that question for you. You can't answer that question for me. That's something that each of us individually will have to settle before the Lord. For some, it may be money. For some, it may be time. For some, it may be getting involved in a certain ministry of a church. For some, it may be investing in the lives of others. You know, we don't have to compare ourselves with other people. Uh, remember the Lord's words, she has done what she could. That's what the Lord is asking of us, that we do what we can. The sacrifices will look different depending on the resources and the situation of life the Lord has placed us. But whatever the sacrifice may be, Mary gives us the example that we have to make sure that our sacrifice is complete. It is clean, it is costly and commendable. Because Jesus deserves nothing less from his followers. That's what being a true disciple is all about. Surrendering ourselves completely to his will, to his purposes, and his word. Always being found at the feet of Jesus. Not thinking about our ambitions, our goals, our dreams, our desires. But surrendering all, surrendering all of those things at his feet. The disciples will get it later, but Mary got it first. In closing, I uh, just want to uh, give you an illustration from the Old Testament. When we come to the book of uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 20, 
24. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. David also understood what it means to be a follower, a disciple of God, even though he was living in the Old Testament and what kind of sacrifices God was pleased with. You know, in 2 Samuel 24, God has punished Israel with a plague for David's sin of counting the fighting men. And the prophet Gad comes to David and tells him to build an altar on the threshing floor of this man called Aruana as a way to seek God's mercy for the plague to be withdrawn. So David approaches Aruana and tells him he wants to buy the threshing floor so he can use it for that purpose, to build the altar and to sacrifice. But Aruana, out of respect for King David, tells him, no, you can just have it. You don't have to pay me for it. In fact, I'll give you the oxen for the sacrifice and the wood for the altar as well. Now, sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? But what's David's response in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24? The king said to Aruana, No, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David knew that if it didn't cost him anything, it's really not a sacrifice. So David is telling Aruana here, I appreciate the gesture. I appreciate the goodwill behind it. But if this is going to be a real sacrifice to the Lord my God, it's going to have to cost me something. Because the end of verse 24, I cannot, I will not, I refuse to sacrifice to the Lord with that which costs me nothing. And that's exactly what Mary exemplified years later in Mark 14. So, what will our sacrifice be this morning? And I pray that the simple story of Mary's sacrifice and devotion to our Lord would be an encouragement to us to figure out what kind of sacrifices the Lord would have us offer. And whatever sacrifices those might be, may the Lord give us grace to make sure it is a complete sacrifice, a total sacrifice. A clean sacrifice, pure, best of the best. A costly sacrifice, something that costs us something. And a sacrifice that would be commendable to Him. And as the words of the song said, and as Mary showed us, words are good, but sometimes we can speak far more with our heart than we can with our word. Remember, the disciples had lots of words. But the Lord said those words were empty words. Mary had no words but the Lord was pleased with her. Shall we pray?